and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game. The beautiful, beautiful, sweet, lovely game. I'm Kevin Day and he is Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Hello Kieran, what have you been up to? Oh, nothing much, Kevin. Uh, the world's the world's a fairly quiet place at present. Yeah, of course. It keeps turning, doesn't it? Despite bad things happening to some people. But anyway, luckily we've got a pod to distract our attention. <laughs> <laughs> despite what some people think on Twitter, we are doing the pod. We are still doing the pod. Um, uh, coming up in this episode, we'll hear from Richard Kenyon, who's the director of marketing, communications, and community at Everton, um, and also has recent experience of winning a big match against. Local rivals, but yeah, that's just a coincidence, Kieran. Uh, although I was very pleased to hear, uh, I'll let the listeners know, I'm, I'm always late because there's no two clocks in my house that tell you at the same time, and I have to walk 10 yards down my garden path to the old garage. Uh, so I invariably uh, interrupt Kieran and whatever guest is have already met, and I came in just as Kieran was moaning about. <laughs> about Monday night, to the bemused Director of Marketing, Communications and Community at Everton going, yeah, it's terrible, Kieran, I'm really really sorry for you. But yeah, then we had a discussion about how the point of football is to actually score more goals than the opposition, rather than just to keep pointlessly passing the ball about in front of them. Um, Is that the last time I'm going to mention it? Yes, it is. It's the last time I'm going to mention it, Kieran. Uh, Kieran, it's Newsday, and after almost exactly a year, we have some good news. I was going to mention it came on Monday night, then people would be confused about what good news I meant. But the Prime Minister gave good news potentially for football because we could have fans back for the last Premier League round of games and for the playoffs. Will that have any financial impact positively whatsoever? Well, if, if you take a club such as Arsenal, they, they can generate you know, four, four and a half million pounds from a, from a normal home game. But it looks as if the, uh, the government's decision is that uh, crowd capacity is going to be limited to um, either 10,000 or a quarter of capacity, whichever is, uh, whichever is the, the lower. Um, but it, it's a start. And uh, you know, I, I've been to a match with 2,000 people, and it was just great to be back. So uh, I think that's be a positive. The only reservation is because it is going to coincide with the last round of matches taking place in the Premier League, it's therefore going to give some clubs, arguably, a very small advantage. So it it looks as if the Premier League chairman are going to have a vote as to whether or not they're going to take up the offer to, to have this. I mean, the alternative is that if it's going to be Monday, May the 17th, when the rules are relaxed, part of me says, well, why can't all the the fixtures taking place that weekend, why can't they be shifted to Monday night? Because every everybody be absolutely loving that. You, you get to, Everybody gets the opportunity to, to be at least be in the uh, in the lottery uh, in terms of getting a ticket for the mm. last home match of the season. Um, and then I spoke to somebody uh, in broadcasting and they said, no, we won't allow that because we've we've paid for matches to take place on Saturday and Sunday. So, you know, as, as for you fans, you, you can go and forget yourselves. Right. So hang on. So just explain that again. So it doesn't look like there will be. So the, the last round of Premier League games is going to be just before the cutoff point, is it? Uh, the, the last round of games uh, in the Premier League is the 24th, 25th of uh, right, I, May. Right, right. Uh, the, the the lockdown ends on Monday the 17th. So right. there was a case for saying, I, well, I got, let's yes, take yes. that weekend's games and yes. shift them to the Monday. Yeah. But uh, I, I don't think the broadcasters will allow that, uh, both domestically and overseas. Okay. Now, th- that, that point you made there about... There might be a slight unfairness. I haven't even looked at the fixtures. Are there any potential games that could uh, resolve issues at the top or bottom between two teams in the last game of the season? I think Fulham are playing Newcastle. So, oh, you know, that, oh, could, well, that, that okay. could be uh, an absolute stormer. Well, that would be interesting then, wouldn't it, if if one or if, if the away team decides that the home team suddenly get an advantage they haven't had all season. But let's not worry about the bad things because let's just concentrate on the fact that for once we do seem to have a sensible, logical uh, pathway out of this and the fact that fans could be back in. And by the time the Euros are happening, we could have pretty full stadiums, which is something we've been longing to report for a long time, Kieran. So that's that's very yeah. good news. Um, the big six, or the so-called... The guy always says we should say the so-called big six. 
Premier League clubs. So I, I th- you know, I suppose Leicester fans would say you should clarify which big six you're talking about. But the big six Premier League clubs are pushing for the right to sell matches direct to fans in overseas countries. Yeah, okay. Let, let's rename them, them the greedy six, perhaps, uh, because that's <laughs> okay. that's more in line with their Ooh. their somewhat Machiavellian ways. Ooh, somebody's, um, somebody's still in a bad mood for some reason, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> So uh, the Premier League rights for 2022 to 25 are up for negotiation soon. And it would appear that uh, there is pressure from some of the larger clubs. Uh, and I think you can bet your bottom dollar this is, is, this is being pushed by uh, Liverpool, Manchester United, uh, to give them uh, or to give every club, to be fair, the opportunity to sell the overseas rights for up to eight games of a season. Um, And they would use their their own TV channels. They could use their own apps. They can go directly to the fan in terms of uh, this relationship. So clearly that will give a significant financial advantage to the likes of Manchester United and Liverpool and Chelsea. And everybody knows that these clubs uh, are... The, the most popular in in the Premier League, and, and, and there's no denial of that. Mm. At present, uh, that gives them, on average, a financial advantage over the remaining clubs of around about three hundred and fifty million pounds a year. And the argument put forward by Joel Glazer and John Henry is that well, that financial advantage is not enough because there's a danger that. Uh, upstarts, you know, we've we got we've got Leicester and West Ham yeah. who are presently in the top four, which which clearly is unfair on, <laughs> on those big clubs, you know, yeah. who who should by right be qualifying for the Champions League, regardless of how they perform on the pitch. Um, so by extending the financial advantage over the the smaller clubs, it would mean that um, it would be more difficult for Leicester to keep hold of James Madison because mm, mm. they wouldn't be able to afford him to pay the wages. It's the same with Palace and Zaha. It's the same with West Ham and Declan Rice and things of this nature. So if you if you if you give less money to the smaller clubs, that means that the the bigger clubs will be able to effectively act as sort of glorified praying mantises and just pick up the talent more easily than they do at present. And I'm guessing, Kieran, that if if the so-called big six, or, no, let's call them the greedy six, why not? If the greedy six are given the right to sell matches direct to fans in overseas countries, the matches they choose will be the games against each other, won't they? Well, apparently they have said, oh, no, we're not going to do that because we know that it will reduce the value of the overall uh, Premier League package. Um, but m- my view is if they get their own way, um, then they'll say, well, we've done it for eight games uh, overseas. Why, why can't we do it for eight domestic games a season as well? Mm. And all of a sudden, if you are a fan, now you're paying money to Sky and to BT and to Amazon and you're paying your TV licence and now you're having to pay the club and you're trying to go to you know, a few of the matches yourself. So it, it could uh, certainly become more expensive for fans. It would, it would certainly be more lucrative for these clubs. But surely the success of the Premier League as as a product, you know, and, and we hate to use this word because because we're romantic fans, but mm. as as a you know as a, as a ridiculously successful product globally has been on the back of it being competitive. If, if you take a look at what happens in Italy, uh, you know, Juve have been have won it for what the last seven years. Bayern mm. have won the yeah, the Bundesliga yeah. for the last nine years. PSG have won the the French league. Um, what what these owners want to do is that from a financial point of view they want to make the that glass ceiling which already exists they want they want to make it that much thicker to to prevent the upstarts from challenging um and, and the irony is that had it not been for those upstarts had it not been from the fact that yeah you know, palace have gone to old trafford and won this season we've mm. gone to anfield burnley have gone mm. to anfield and yeah. they've won and therefore people watch the football because they know it's not necessarily going to be a walkover yeah, and we always praise the bizarrely socialist model of the NFL, but the NFL are not doing it for good old-fashioned socialist reasons. The NFL are doing what they do, distributing the wealth in the NFL, so it remains competitive. So it's 
it, it seems odd that American club owners won't look at the example of their own countries to see what you should be doing with the money to retain the competitive league. But obviously their desire to win the titles every year and to get into Europe every year outweighs the model of a, a competitive football league. Yes, yeah. And of course, there's the somewhat insidious toys out of pram. Uh, well, if we don't get our way, we're going to start to push for an 18 club Premier League or we're going to change voting rights because, uh, you know, it, it, I, I've seen some very senior football people say, why should clubs like Palace and Brighton, who have been in the Premier League for, you know, sort of, you know, we've been here, what, four years, you've been here eight or nine years. Mm. Um, why should they get the same number, same number of votes as Liverpool or Manchester United? The, the idea of one person, one vote appears to be alien to, to these uh, billionaires. Mm. I mean, that, that win you had at Anfield was uh, annoyingly amazing. Be honest with me, Kieran, around about five past ten on Monday, were you tempted to just put the highlights of that game from Anfield on just as a little... Little palate cleanser. I said I wouldn't. I said I wouldn't mention it, Kieran. That's not fair. Uh, I won't. That'll be the last time I mention it. Except, unfortunately, there's a question about Roy Hodgson coming up, which which, <laughs> which producer guy seems to think is my birthday present. Uh, which, thank you for that, guy. I'll take it as Easter, Christmas, and birthday from you. Um, on a similar note, Kieran, the boss of BT Sport, and basically this is, it sounds like his roundabout way of saying is there's not nearly as much money coming your way as there would be. The boss of BT Sports says Europe's top football league should be braced for a period of deflation. They got to brace themselves for a period of deflation in the value of their TV rights. Presumably, Europe's top football leagues includes the Premier League, does it, Kieran? It, it certainly does. So this is Simon Green from BT Sport, and, and he was talking at the uh, Financial Times Business of Football Conference. So again, I think it's indicative. You know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, the, the, the Financial Times wouldn't have even acknowledged the existence of football. Mm. Now it's got two dedicated reporters, um, and it even sponsors a football finance uh, podcast on Amazing. occasion. So, Amazing, yeah. On occasion, so, you know, yeah. The, the, the game has certainly moved on uh, in that regard. Uh, If if we actually take a look at the present uh, TV deal from Sky and BT, they're paying 10% less than they had done in 2017 to 19. So that that deflation has already started. Um, Nobody noticed it when when the latest set of uh, TV deals went through because the the increase in the overseas rights more than compensated. But now um, I, I think there's going to be uh, deflation all round. We, we've seen the Bundesliga rights; uh, they've decreased by five percent for their next uh, their next set of fixtures. Um, I, I know that Ender uh, Analytics, who are sort of a, a management consultancy firm, they've been looking at sport overall, and they reckon uh, fees are down around about fifteen percent. And the reason for this is that young people aren't particularly interested in watching ninety minutes of football. Um, as in the same way that our generation are, uh, you know, they've grown up with Netflix and Amazon Prime. They've mm, they've, bo- mm. they've grown up with channel hopping and uh, you know OTT services and and not watching live television. You know, they will binge watch and so on. So um, the likes of Sky and BT, if if they are going to compete against Amazon Prime and Netflix, uh, they've got to come up with products which aren't necessarily sport. To, to try to ensure that they, they, they don't have people cutting the cord uh, in, in terms of the, what, what they offer their consumers. Hmm. Kieran, I, I honestly, I begged producer Guy not to include this question. I said, Guy, this, seriously, Guy, this, it's insensitive. But producer Guy said our feelings were as nothing compared to our duty to inform listeners about football finance issues. And reluctantly, Kieran, I agreed with him. Um, basically, Roy, <laughs> you spoiled it now. You can't. I, I can keep a straight face on radio, but you've ruined it. You've made me. Roy Hodgson um, has told Crystal Palace to resolve the contract issues affecting twelve players in his squad before opening talks over his own deal. Um, which, even off the back of that two-one win the other night, seems slightly optimistic of him. This is something that Palace fans uh, have been talking about. Well, not this week, obviously, but it's something Palace fans have been talking about for quite some time, that we've allowed a situation where 12, not just squad players, but 12 senior squad players, mainly first-team players, uh, have their contracts up for renewal in in the summer, uh, which is, is baffling how that's been allowed to happen. Uh, but Roy Hodgson clearly thinks... That, you know, his contract is as, is as nothing compared to resolving the future of 12 of these players, eight of which I would argue are players we would want to keep. 
Yeah, it, it does seem that uh, it's an unusual approach taken by Palace. Mm. I would, however, say that it, in many respects, financially, it couldn't have come at a better time. Oh, because okay. if we take a look at where we're going to be this summer, um, transfer fees in general, you, you've got players who you can either re-sign on a Bosman, and if so, I don't. You'll be. You can offer them lower wages mm. because uh, if, if we take a look at what's happening in France, in Italy, in Spain, and Germany, and so on, in those markets, there's downward pressure on wages. Um, if if Palace want to get rid of some of these players who are out of contract, their replacements will be coming in on lower transfer fees because we've got deflation in the transfer market. So although. I don't think it was well, clearly it wasn't planned. Nobody perceived, you know, nobody had any preconception of the the pandemic arriving. Um, if if you were going to have twelve players out of contract this summer, uh, it, it it really is a perfect storm because you can get rid of the ones that you you really don't want. The ones which you're a bit indifferent about, you can offer them a lo- a, a lower deal uh, in terms of remuneration, and there's fewer places uh, that they can go to as an alternative. And if you do want to bring in replacements, you can bring them in on less money. So it's it's a perfect buyer's market, and and Palace are going to be big buyers this summer. I wouldn't I wouldn't bet on that. I'm, I'm glad you said that. Um, it may or may not have been the plan. It wasn't the plan, Kieran. You saying it couldn't have come at a better time implies that there was a plan. As a Palace fan of long standing, I know that this wasn't a plan. Just as we happily went along with Roy Hodgson on Monday night, indicating that his plan was to be battered for 90 minutes and then be <laughs> score a goal right there. That wasn't the plan, technically, but we'll, we're happy for Roy We're happy for Roy to take credit for that being the plan. Of course we are, but um, there's nothing planned about allowing 12 senior professionals to come up with, one of whom is, is somebody who scored that remarkable goal. Um, now, this story, I like this story. That's the last time. I won't mention it again. I can't see any... Oh, I can. I can see two occasions. Um, but I'll try not to. Um, and I say this, Kieran, childishly, because I know you're too big to do it to me if the roles are reversed next season. Plus, I'm hosting, so you haven't got half the chance. And I like I like this story. And with hindsight, I wonder why this the supporters of Sheffield Wednesday didn't think of this before. You've, you've always argued that football stadiums should have some kind of listed status as important buildings up and down the country do. And Sheffield Wednesday Supporters Trust have applied for Hillsborough to be classified as an asset of community value. What would that mean in practice if that, if that uh, application was allowed? Well, um, if, if you are an asset of community value, you've got to prove, first of all, that the main use is for the, is for the sort of the further well-being of the local community. Um, and you know, we will be talking to Richard Kenyon about the work that Everton have done. Sheffield Wednesday, again, a fantastic club in, in terms of uh, the, the contribution they make to the local area. Yeah. Similar, you know, I, I, as you know, I work in the city of Liverpool. There's huge areas of social deprivation there. You know, there's there's issues of a similar nature taking place in Sheffield. So, because they do make such a contribution to the the local community, um, then uh, we can effectively get some form of uh, protection, but but not a lot. I've got to be honest. Uh, I mean, and there are examples of other clubs who have gone through this route. So, but both Old Trafford and, and Anfield um, have been designated assets of community value. I think the key thing is in respect of transparency, and, and sadly, that is that is a word that is lacking when it comes to mm. the way that Sheffield Wednesday have been run. Uh, we've not seen any accounts since 2018. The ground is now owned. Hillsborough is now owned by a company called Sheffield three, which bought Hillsborough from Sheffield Wednesday football club for 60 million pounds. But based on the last set of accounts, they, whilst they bought it, they haven't actually got round to paying for it. Now mm. you know, that may have changed since, uh, you know, we, 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 but we don't know because they they refuse to publish the accounts. Mm. So if there is going to be any plan to change the use of Hillsborough, then that would have to come out at an earlier stage, and therefore that would allow the um, you know the supporters' trust. Uh, at Sheffield Wednesday, it would allow them to to get their act together to to try to put up some form of uh, you know case that that would be inappropriate and things of this nature, or you know potentially, and I, and I think this is unlikely in practice to, to say, well, okay, if as we are sort of custodians 
of the asset of community value, we will try to buy it ourselves. So it's it's not a perfect barrier. Um, it, it can't stop Hillsborough being sold for football purposes. But if there are any plans to change use, I think that is where the benefits take place. Now, I have seen some some commentators say, well, this will therefore make it more difficult to sell the club. Um, I, I'm not convinced of that because provided you're selling the club to somebody with good intentions in terms of the long-term future and sustainability of Sheffield Wednesday as a football club, then the only possible use they'll want for Hillsborough mm. is to is for it to host matches. Um, but uh, it's it, it, if this goes ahead, I, I think it's a positive. Um, you know, we've argued before on the show that that there should be ideally some form of uh, ideally central, if not local, uh, strategy in terms of uh, preventing the the potential use and misuse of football stadia. You don't want to end. You don't want it, it to end up as a branch of Toys R Us. I can mm. assure you. Uh, no, and absolutely none of us would like that. This is not an area I have any knowledge of at all, Kieran. But it. Surely logic would dictate that only the owners can apply for it to be classified as an asset of community value, but that's not the case. No, no, uh, because it is a community asset. And and I think uh, the the supporters trust are trying to get Sheffield Wednesday on board because if the club's on board now, then it just makes, you know, it, it reduces the number of potential barriers. What you don't want is for this to go to some form of tribunal or have to go uh, in front of the council or whoever's going to make the final decision. And, you know, the lawyers get involved, delays start to appear. And during that period of time, things can take place uh, if if somebody's a bit nimble and and that might not be in the best interest. So uh, I think it's important that the club and the supporters trust are, are both rowing in the same direction on this um, and, and I wish the Sheffield Wednesday supporters trust uh, all the best because you know they do have the best interests of the club uh, at heart because it's it's their club. It clubs clubs don't clubs never belong to billionaires. Mm-hmm. They belong to yeah. the fans. They belong to the community. Yeah, well, I, I'm encouraged by the fact that the the club shouldn't necessarily look upon this as a hostile act. Then that the, the supporters trust want the club to be involved. So that's that's good news and. <laughs> And how many times have we said this, Kieran, in the past year and a bit since we started it? You'd imagine the club owners would look kindly upon this, but <sighs> we're too optimistic sometimes, aren't we? Not not, not far down the road, uh, Kieran, Doncaster Rovers Chief Executive Gavin Baldwin has expressed um, disappointment, shall we say, at the way the League One package was dished out. Yes, um, and uh, I think uh, this is an example of clubs now using communication in the right way. So, so Gavin Baldwin says, I, I'm the chief executive of the club. What I'm going to do is is once a month, I'm going to write an epistle on the club website um, looking at some of the issues which perhaps you weren't aware of. Um, and if, if they put the information out there and we choose to ignore it, that's one thing. Yeah. But, it, but I think he, he is doing the right approach. And we are seeing this from more and more clubs. And, and I think that's, uh, it, it's for me, it's an example of best practice uh, you know, they're not the only club that are doing it. There's some fantastic examples, the likes of Lincoln and Shrewsbury and others that that uh, that I've seen. So, so it's good that so many clubs are starting to to realise that talking to fans as grown ups actually has benefits. Mm. Um, but to to look at the rescue package that uh, has come from the Premier League to Leagues One and Two, um, every club in League One receives a flat fee of £375,000 plus a top-up based on average attendance. Um, and we've, we've not seen the final figures for this, but the, the, the aim is to ensure that it covers lost gate receipts. So I think this is, I think you've got to give the EFL some credit here because it's, it's a more sophisticated scheme than we've seen in the National League where it's just flat fees. There's two flat fees per division. Um, and you know, we, we've discussed ad nauseum the fact that the, the National League is now at civil war with itself. Mm. Um, but uh, Gavin's then gone on to say, well, you know, we, we were aware of this and we were aware that the bigger clubs, the likes of Sunderland, Portsmouth and Ipswich in League One and clearly the likes of Bolton Wanderers in League Two will therefore get more money. 
but I don't think he he's saying that he realised they'd get quite as much more money, right. and um, they are a six-figure sum down, you know, at least a hundred grand down on what he says they were led to believe that they would be in receipt of. I think you know we've given I've given credit to the EFL in terms of. Uh, you know, having a scheme which I think shows an appropriate degree of flexibility. Mm. Why this couldn't have been worked out almost instantly, because you know what the the gate receipts are per club, um, and, and communicated to to the individual clubs so that they they don't get disappointed. Um, so you know that that's that that's you know it, it's frustrating. Um, I've also just want to give a quick shout out to. Doncaster fans themselves, because I read Gavin's um, chief executive report, and he said in terms of season ticket holders, and this is fans who love their club, they want their club to be in existence, less than 5% asked for a full refund Mm. uh, in respect of their season tickets, and over half of them uh, just said, just treat it as a donation to the club because we're Donny fans we want Rovers to be in existence. Mm. We want to be able to go and see them in 12 months' time. And we're in a position where uh, yeah, we don't need the money. You know, clearly, personal circumstances must come first. Mm. But you know, hats off to all those fans um, uh, of Doncaster. Well, and the fans of every other club who have done something Absolutely. similar. It, it's so frustrating, Kieran, in League 1 and 2 and in the National League, an attempt to help people financially has just caused so much division and rancor rather than the contentment it should have done but it's a story that we'll be talking about until the end of the season now given the circumstances of Coventry City we we mention them amazingly rarely on this show but there is some confusion this week amongst Coventry fans over the future of the club's right and training ground Yes, uh, for people not familiar with the ownership of uh, Coventry City, um, it is owned by a uh, hedge fund called Sisu. Um, Sisu run Coventry City via a company called Otium Entertainment. And when you go through the crumb trail and find out eventually where Sisu are located, Surprise, surprise, it's the Cayman Islands. You know, who'd have thought a hedge fund would operate from the Cayman, Cayman Islands, that place which, you know, place which is quite famous for its somewhat uh, casual attitude towards corporate governance. Um, so since CSU acquired Coventry, um, the, the club has been losing money left, right and centre. It's got, it's got accumulated losses. And here we're talking about a club that... that doesn't register. You, you don't think of Coventry as being ridiculous big spenders or anything of this nature. Kevin, Coventry City have lost over 85 million quid. Since when? Eight, eight, uh, you know, uh, in, in the past you know, decade or, or just over. Wow. So, you know, so, so you know, they've got accumulated losses looking here at 85 million quid. And uh, I mean, this is, this is where I find Sisu's strategy very very bewildering hmm. they've they've funded though a lot of those losses they they now uh, they've got outstanding loans to the football club of around about 40 million pounds which again goes completely against what you'd expect a a fairly ruthless uh, industry to be doing so it's it's all very confusing and then uh, it turns out uh, somebody who was eagle-eyed was looking at, uh, at some some documentation coming out for a local council, um, and Coventry's training ground, which is called Wrighton, um, which Sisu bought via OTM Entertainment for three hundred and fifty grand, now appears to be up for sale um, to be converted into housing stock. Uh, and, and if that is the case, it will be sold at a considerable profit. Uh, I mean, Wrighton officially is on Greenbelt land, but looking at uh, yeah, various pronouncements, uh, I think that could be uh, overseen, provided they can sort of prove that they'll find another Greenbelt elsewhere for, for some form of activity. So it, it is a bit messy. Um, there's there's a very toxic relationship between the Coventry City fan base who have had to go and traipse to Northampton, and now yeah, they're having to go to Birmingham, yeah. if they were able to traipse to a football ground, of course, mm. um, and Sisu. And that's partly due to the fact that Sisu thought that they'd be able to get um, the Rico Arena, or whatever it chooses to call itself these days, um, 
they, they thought they'd be able to get it very cheaply uh, when they acquired the club, and that that didn't manifest. So so now they've been kicked out by the by the by the landlords there. Mm. Uh, well done for saying eagle-eyed, by the way, Kieran. It just proves what a mature man you are, um, and I'm the lesser man for actually pointing it out. One more, one more story before uh, an interview, which I can only describe as one of the most positive and upbeat interviews that we've done for some time. Uh, FC United of Manchester have published their accounts for 2019-20. Yes, um, and and again, for people not familiar, I, I, sometimes I appreciate we've got lots of overseas listeners to the show. Um, FC United of Manchester were set up as a as a protest by dedicated Manchester United fans when the Glazers had the leveraged buyout of of the club that they love in 2005 um it, it presently plays in the the northern premier league um and and the good news is after they, they've had a few lean years. They, they they had a bit of a problem, FC United Manchester, or Fookham, as uh, they prefer to call themselves. Um, they they have a uh, they had a problem internal strife um, at broad level. They didn't really have a proper business plan when they moved to to their own ground because they were playing at Gig Lane uh, on occasion, yeah. uh, where, where Berry used to play football. But they finally got their own ground called Broadhurst Park and. They, they, you know, perhaps that things weren't as good as they should be. But the, the great news is, is that the revenue has hold, held up almost for for twenty twenty, um, and that's in no way, shape, or form down to the, uh, the, the a fantastic approach taken by the fans. Again, you know, not turning, saying keep your season tickets. Amazing. Uh, uh, raising of, of money for good causes, um, and, and as a result of that, they've actually made a, a significant profit. They made nearly two hundred grand of profit uh, in twenty twenty, which is going towards uh, the, the development uh, in around the area uh, of Broadhurst Park. Um, and I've also got to give them a shout out um, because uh, you know, they are a a club in what yeah, the sixth seventh tier of English football, but. They are an amazing example of a, a community club, mm. uh, and they've been nominated by the Football Supporters Association for their food hub, uh, which is you know uh, we'll be coming on to discussing things of this nature with Richard shortly. Yeah. Um, but is is a fantastic example of delivering things to people who need it, and, and some of the other nominees, you know, the likes of Clapton, who we've spoken to as well, um, you know, hats hats are doffed firmly. Um, and uh, you know, if, if everybody could win that particular prize, um, you know, I'd, I'd be only too happy for for that community club activity prize to be to be awarded to everyone. Um, and, and of course, you know, other other organisations have been nominated for other prizes by the Football Supporters Association, but voting has ceased. Uh, <clears throat> yes, and let's let's not let's not hold our breath, Kieran. <laughs> uh, everyone, everyone's a winner, as far as I'm concerned. It it seems, of course, like Everton are on the verge of exciting times, both on and off the pitch. So it felt like the right moment to chat to Richard Kenyon, who is the Director of Marketing, Communications and Community at Everton Football Club. Richard, thank you so much for joining us. Are you still basking in the glory of that Derby win? Feels good, doesn't it? It feels very good. It was a long time in coming. Um, obviously, everyone's talking about how how long it is since we won at Anfield. I, I remember the last time we won, and um, I've been there many, many times in between, and uh, usually come away pretty disappointed. So uh, it was it was absolutely brilliant on uh, Saturday night to to get that result, to put that to bed. Those years of not winning at Anfield, but but also, you know, it was a really, really good performance. I thought by by our players. Um, I thought we, you know, thoroughly deserved it. And, um, you know, it, it was a good three points for us to get in the league as well after um, obviously two defeats during the week before. So um, puts us back on track and hopefully in contention for a, a European spot. So yeah, very, um, very, very good to, to win at Anfield. And I haven't said that, <laughs> I haven't said that for a long time. Um, thoroughly enjoyed watching it. And uh, it, as I say, great three points um, to get. Yeah, I think people can tell already, uh, Richard, if they didn't know before, that you, you not only do you work for the club, but you are an Evertonian through and through, aren't you? I, I am, yeah, lifelong Evertonian. So um, I've seen uh, seen some good days. I was um, a, a child growing up in the 80s, so uh, 
was growing up through an absolutely brilliant period in our history. And I mean, I used to go to games then and genuinely thought we were never going to lose. I, I remember being in tears as a sort of 10 year old boy anytime we lost because it was that it seemed that rare well it was that rare um love love going to Goodison Park back then um obviously still love going now in a, in a professional capacity but um but yeah it's it's you know brilliant club always always been my club and and always will be for sure oh, Kieran imagine that supporting a team that you think will never lose what a wonderful <laughs> feeling that we're, we're, we're talking of of Goodison Richard, there's been some more good news for Everton fans just a couple of hours ago, hasn't there? Yeah, that's right. We, um, we've we been looking to move from Goodison for a while now and started a few years ago to look in earnest at um, a, a new site for us down at the waterfront in Liverpool at Bramley Moor Dock. And over the last few years, we've been doing extensive consultation of our own fan base of people across the city region to to talk to them about the potential of moving down there, to get their views, to get their feedback. And then in the last year or two, to two or three years now, to get their support. So we've been out in the community. We've been doing road shows. We've been engaging with lots of people, not just Everton fans, but also um, people who've of a different persuasion, people who don't support football at all, to, to try and um, inform them about our scheme. And as I say, to try and generate support for it. So, we, we've been through that process. We did um, public consultation over two stages that saw 63,000 people, more than 63,000 people come out and discuss our plans with us. And, and the vast, vast majority of them um, were very supportive of our scheme. And every question we asked them scored very, very highly, most of them in their 90 odd percents of uh, approval. So we, we took that um, consultation into the, the planning process just over a year ago. And it was... Um, recommended for planning approval by the planning officer a week or so ago and um, has had now um, planning approval for the stadium at the waterfront, but also for a, a legacy, community-led legacy at Goodison Park granted by the um, the local planning committee. So that's a, a really, really big milestone in our project. Um, it now gets reviewed as a matter of course uh, because of this, the, the size of the application and um, by the government over the next few weeks. So um, still some milestones to go in the process, but absolutely delighted to get that um, that uh, approval from the local planning uh, committee. And, uh, you know, hopefully a, a really significant day in, um, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the club's history. In, in years to come, we hopefully look back at this and, and think this was a, you know, really important milestone and a big step forward for us. And there is even more good news on on Monday evening, uh, Richard. It's slightly overshadowed, of course, the Prime Minister's announcement by the game that followed it. But the the fact that fans, it's just a shame you're away for the last game of the season, but the fact that it looks like fans will be coming in next season is is fantastic because Goodison Park needs to say goodbye with a full house every week, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And clearly it will be emotional in those um, those, uh, years leading up to us leaving Goodison because Goodison's been a tremendous home for us as a football club and, and has a great history. You know, it, it, it was, it, it was in its day, you know, innovative stadium, lots of things mm-hmm. happened at Goodison Park first. It's um, held an FA Cup final. It's held a World Cup semi-final. It, it's got lots of things about it that are not just history for Everton, but history of the game, you know, very important stadium in, in, in world football, actually. Um, so it will be emotional to lose, uh, uh, um, to, to move away for Evertonians, but also I think for for um, people in uh, the, the wider football world. But we, we do need to move. We need to um, move to fulfil our own ambitions, obviously, as a football club. And um, that's from a, a fan experience point of view, from a financial point of view, um, from a very simple point of view that we've outgrown it. We've got a, a significant waiting list now and we're sold out for every game. So, you know, the time has come for us to move. But also it, it's very important to us in our city um, to to move to a new stadium because of the uh, regenerational impact that it will have. It will create uh, 15,000 jobs in the construction phase, uh, £1.3 billion worth of, um, of value it has um, to the economy. Um, so lots of lots of um, really compelling reasons for us to move, but it, of course it will be a sad day when we leave Goodison. And, and talking mm-hmm. of, of fans being back in stadium, we we actually had fans back in um, in December this year. And again, I've been going to games without 
you know, behind closed doors with no fans yeah. there at all. And the difference just having a couple of thousand fans in there made it was was incredible. It felt much more like that, that authentic uh, experience that we're all used to as uh, match going fans. So yeah, we, you know, hopefully if we can get some fans in uh, before the end of the season, we, we probably won't have good mm-hmm. as you say because of our last game being away. But if if the Premier League can start reintroducing fans um, before the end of the season or early into next, whenever that is, it, it's going to be, you know, a, a massive step and something that we're all looking forward to. Yeah, I, I think all yeah, football fans will miss because it, it was the first all-covered stadium in the country and certainly the first stadium where small children threw toffees at Dockers on match day, which is always something that, <laughs> it's always something that bemused yeah. everybody, I think. Yeah, the, 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 the toffee lady, yeah, yeah, still going strong and I'm, I'm sure um, we'll be taking that tradition with us as well. Brilliant. Richard, just in terms of what you do for Everton, can you give us some context? Because you're Director of Marketing, Communications and Community, which is a fairly big remit. So presumably you've got a fairly big team to help you with that. Yeah, I have two roles. I have um, the role that you just described at the club. And also um, I run our charity, um, Everton in the Community, which is the charitable arm of the football club. So my my role at the club looks after... uh, the media and communication side of things, the marketing, which is um, selling the, the, the tickets and um, memberships and our, growing our, our profile uh, globally. Um, and also um, on the communication side of things, obviously a big part of my role and, and my team's remit over the last few years has been um, working on that new stadium consultation that I've just described. So that's been a really important part of our uh, comms and engagement work over the last couple of years and, and something that, you know, we've been, mm. um, we've done in a very sort of a thorough way, but it's been really, really enjoyable throughout the process. Um, the other part of my role is as chief executive of Everton in the community, mm. and that is overseeing um, the, the charitable work of the football club or the charitable arm of the football club and um, Everton in the community is a is a is a large organisation. It, it, it's it's separate in technical terms from the from the football club. It, yeah. It's um, it, it's obviously a, a charity and set up that way with its own trustees. But obviously, it it, it lives because of the football club and um, and and you know does the the great work that it does because of uh, the football club and the engagement that the word Everton can bring into everything that we do. So. Um, yeah, so I share my time between um, the two roles and, and they've been, uh, obviously, like it has been for everyone in the last 12 months, been, been very, very different. You know, the, the, the marketing side of things and the ticketing has been about uh, refunds and, and then re- partial reopening and managing all of that process, processes that we never thought we would, we would have to do. Um, obviously, there's been different um, comms uh, challenges and again we've continued to press on with our new stadium plans and doing doing some of that remotely has obviously had its challenges as well but we've managed to stay on track but the work of the charity has been um, really really important through this this pandemic era because in, in any in any usual year we'd be supporting more than 10,000 people on our programs and we've had to obviously continue to do that albeit in a virtual way most of through most of the last 12 months but we've also um, set up a campaign working with the football club that means that we can help people who perhaps we wouldn't usually be working with um, throughout the times of crisis. And that's had uh, tens of thousands of people um, needing support and, and us being able to step up as a, as a charity and as a football club to help them has been really, really important. So it's been a very, very busy, dynamic year, but a year in which we've been able to uh, help even more people in the end. Well, I'm a trustee of the the foundation at Palace, uh, Palace for Life, so I know a lot about what you do at Everton. But you've just announced record annual revenue for the charity, which is astonishing. How were you able to do that in such difficult circumstances? Yeah, I mean we've been we've been growing as a charity in the last few years, and obviously our our plans were impacted by the pandemic, as you would expect. But we've had absolutely incredible support from a number of sources, and. Pretty much all of our um, our funders, organisations who who make our programmes possible, have worked with us flexibly, um, and I include the Premier League in that, who've been absolutely brilliant. So um, we've been running our programmes in different ways, and everyone's been supportive and, and continue to to fund our programmes in the main, um, even though we might be doing sessions over Zoom or 
Our groups might be communicating by WhatsApp. The, the funding has been maintained. So that, that's been really, really good for us. Um, we've also secured some new partnerships, which, again, has been really important in this year, but also will stand us in a really good stead, a really good stead moving forward. So we've already started working on our, our post-pandemic plans, whether that be around mental health, whether it be around supporting more people, uh, young people in schools who are going to have very different um, challenges coming out of this. Um, and we've also had absolutely tremendous support from our fans and, and following that, our owner and chairman. So um, I mentioned earlier about how part of my remit is looking after the refund process and managing all of that. We, um, when we announced that we were going to have to be refunding season tickets because we didn't see games coming back in the foreseeable, mm. we started getting contact immediately from supporters right across the world um, saying, you know, I bought tickets for, for this game or I have a season ticket. Um, I don't really want the money back. I'd much rather you used it to help local people because this is this pandemic is obviously going to be uh, be putting some people in crisis. So we looked we looked at that and we thought, well, okay, well let's introduce that as an option within our refund process. So supporters had the opportunity to either take take the full refund, make a partial donation, or carry it over into future purchases. And we were absolutely blown away. Just last season alone, we generated £400,000 from our supporters, um, which I just find absolutely incredible still, you know, for, for, for fans to say, you know, I don't want the money back. I'd rather help people who need it more than me is just, you know, I think is amazing and, and, and says a lot about our supporter base and also what they obviously think about our charity and, and the knowledge of the, our work that they must have. So that, that obviously helped us help more people. And then on hearing of that, the owner and chairman, um, uh, our chairman, Bill Kenwright, and the owner, uh, Mr. Mashiri, um, said that they would match it. So that gave us an, adi- an, an additional 400,000. So we had 800,000 uh, pounds on top of some other support that we got to go out and help um, people who really needed it. And we've, uh, the last count, uh, the last data that I looked at, supported more than 28,000 families on top of the family, uh, the, the people that we would support in a normal year. Um, and, you know, that has included buying hundreds and hundreds of laptops for kids who, um, you know, are, t- are trying to homeschool but don't have the resources to do so. So that's helping ensure that that education gap doesn't get wider. We've actually purchased or, or delivered through either us purchasing them or our partners helping us. And more than quarter of a million meals now for families who need it. Um, and we've also been um, paying electricity bills for people, um, putting um, not only the food on people's plate, uh, food on people's tables, but also plates and cutlery on people's tables who didn't have it. We've been delivering food parcels and then turning up a few days later and noticing that they haven't been used. And that's been because people couldn't pay their electricity to cook it or didn't have a microwave. So we've purchased that, that kind of equipment. We've purchased beds for kids who didn't have them. I, I could go I could go on and on and on, but we've given yeah, yeah. a lot of support, but so much of that has been because of our the, the 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 trust that our partners have put in us and the generosity of our our fans and our owner and chairman. I, I want to bring Kieran in on this subject in a moment, but you also announced recently as part of the plan to leave Goodison Park that you will continue to invest in the area you leave behind long after you're in the new stadium, which I think is pretty impressive. Yeah, the the principle for that really was when we moved from Goodison in in the sense of not playing football there anymore, we we, just, we really just wanted to, to leave a legacy that would have value for years to come. And we we thought about, you know, ways that that value, shape that that value could take. And our chief executive, Denise, basically came up with the principle that, you know, we want to generate as much societal value from that site rather than just selling it off for the biggest mm. check that we could take, the biggest financial amount that we could take. So over the last few years, we've been working with different partners to look at what's possible for that site. And we're looking at basically extending our existing Goodison campus, which I'll come back to in a second. But it's really about putting whatever um, we can on that footprint that will help that um, area be regenerated, will provide um, better chances for local people, better chances for young people. So we're looking at education facilities, we're looking at health facilities, there'll be some retail most likely, um, 
there'll certainly be some um, accommodation. But really, again, the principle guiding it is that it will deliver the maximum social value that we possibly can. And we've already started doing that. I mentioned just there about the, the term, the Goodison Campus, and that there are yeah. a number of buildings around the stadium that we've um, either taken over or built in recent years. So we have a number of um, buildings that run that are run as community centres. So we're running our youth zone from there. We're running programmes for the elderly within our community. We have our own school. We just had planning permission to build a purpose-built mental health facility on that campus as well, which will form part of our uh, post-pandemic recovery plan. So there are lots of buildings in and around Goodison already that are um, a uh, that are forming a, a community campus. So what will take play, what will um, appear on Goodison Park after we stop playing football there will really be an extension of that. There'll also be some open space and some green space. And one concept that we've got is retaining a, a little bit of parkland, if you like, in the middle of, of um, the, what will be the new Goodison campus to uh, represent when we played football at Goodison. As, and we're talking about retaining the centre circle so that in years to come, people can still go down to that site and say that, you know, their kids are playing at Goodison, that kind of thing. So um, those those plans are a little bit behind, obviously, as you would expect, the stadium, because it will follow the this, this stadium build. So we've had an outline um, planning consent from um, the local authority for that uh, uh, compared to the detailed uh, consent from Liverpool City Council. So. Um, so really excited about what um, what could happen at Goodison and the impact that that could have on North Liverpool, which is an area that, that really does need investment and really needs um, to address some of the social challenges that exist there. Mm. I love the idea of the Goodison footprint. As Middlesbrough did something similar, so you, you can still go and stand on the spot where North Korea scored their goal in the World Cup and where various Graham Sooners tackles went in, which I think is brilliant. Kieran... I want to bring you in on the back of this because you and I are often accused of being hopelessly romantic about football, but Rich has just described to us a club, its fans and its community coming together as a positive good. And that's the sort of thing we've been arguing for ever since we started the pod, isn't it? That, that's right. Um, I think Everton, I, I've described Everton as having the, the best uh, community scheme in the country. They've got a lot of experience. Uh, you know, I, I work in the city of Liverpool and you know, I've, I've spoken to, to Richard, you know, who is being incredibly modest as to the achievements of Everton in the community, the, the added value that it makes, you know, every one pound invested uh, by those community schemes in terms of the, 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 the way it is able to turn around people's lives in terms of education. Those people are about to drift off mental health challenges and things of this nature is, is absolutely amazing. And it does go to show, you know, at a time when, too often, I think we, we get quite depressed on the show with the degree of cynicism shown by some people who seem to think of football as nothing more than a vehicle to make money. Mm. But actually, uh, the, the community spirit, which is enshrined in the fans, you know, you know, as Richard said, fans said, no, you know, we, we, if, if we can survive without some of the, the, the money ourselves in, in terms of our season ticket, we want it to go to the local community. Uh, I, I think that's testament to a fantastic mm. fan base um, and also the confidence that the fans have in Everton in the community itself. Mm. Richard, before Everton, you worked closely with horse racing, which is my second favourite sport, and golf, which very much isn't my second favourite sport. But how different is working in football? Is it purely financial, the difference? Um. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I worked um, worked on some of the uh, sort of very high profile events in sports. I've, I've done work, at, albeit as a consultant rather than uh, in house, um, for um, the uh, the Jockey Club and the Grand National, and the Open Golf, and you know, particularly the golf um, is, is you know is something that I, I really loved, and you know the. the the spectacle around those big events is, is quite similar to the sort of Premier League experience. Obviously, a lot of attention on them, a lot of scrutiny on them as well. Um, so some parallels there, um, but probably um, the, the different the difference in being in football is the regularity of of the events. If you like, I mean, stating the obvious, you know, we can have two home games in a week or three home games in a week, even. Whereas those big events that I worked on, you know, you had a longer time. Uh, to sort of plan for them and prepare for them. Um, I, I think the thing with football that I found is it, it is, you know, it's um, an, an industry with 
um, a lot of energy. Um, it's pretty relentless when you're working in it because you know there's always uh, there's always the next game. There's always um, the next thing to do. And, and for us at Everton, they, they, they've been big things in terms of you know the stadium is obviously a huge project for us, and 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 delivering that alongside all the other things that happen at a football club is is a big undertaking. So. So it's um, it's a lot of work. It's a very very dynamic environment, as the other um, sports that I've been involved with have been as well. But I think the difference that I found um, has just been that sort of you know that cycle that you're in. You, you're constantly looking at the next game, and and also with with that, you know things can change very quickly. So from a comms and marketing point of view, we can have all the the best plans in the world, um, but they you have to change and you have to adapt to to what that their broader sentiment is. So. You know, you can accelerate things when things are going well, obviously, and sometimes you just have to slow down a little bit to take into account how how supporters are feeling or or how the club is being viewed because of what's happening on the pitch. So, yeah, very, very, very dynamic industry, but one that I, I absolutely um, love being a part of. And I, I think the other thing on the charity side of thing and a, a charity side of things, and really appreciate what you said there, Kieran, about Everton in the community is that there's a there's a a similar spirit at the charity um, in terms of that that sort of dynamism. My, my colleagues are absolutely brilliant um, at sort of taking things forward, and, and and we have a very simple simple mantra really, which is if we if we see a need in the community, then we we act on it. And there are sadly within our community lots of needs, lots of challenges. But my colleagues at Everton in the community are absolutely absolutely driven to try and address every single one of them. So from the very youngest in our community to the very oldest, whether it's physical health, whether it's mental health, whether it's homelessness, whether it's um, serious organised crime, we've got programmes tackling all of these things. And it's really because the, uh, our team are just so um, so obsessed, really, with just trying to make a positive difference. And as they do that, they just want to do it more and more and more. And they are absolutely brilliant. Everything that we achieve as a charity is down to the hard work, determination, and, and in many cases, bravery of, of my colleagues, and also the support from the very top. I mentioned um, Denise earlier. Denise used to be the chief executive of the charity, and I think that really helps us as well now that she's chief executive of the club because you know we always get great support from the club and from the owner and chairman. I mean, the chairman established Everton in the community 33 years ago, so again, whenever we need to go to the club, to ask for support, we know that it's an open door. So, um, so we're very lucky in that respect. But also, just to to add to what Kieran said, you know, lots of football clubs, most football clubs, are, are doing brilliant work in their communities. And I think um, there's a lot more that we can all do to to tell that story. And I think um, through the pandemic, a lot of the stories have actually come to the fore more than uh, they might have done in the past. But the, the, there is brilliant work going on right across. And the league's not just in the Premier League. It, it's not just Everton in the community. By any means, we're, we're quite a mature community programme and um, we we have a, a lot of diversity in what we provide, but but most clubs are doing a really, really good job in the community, a very valuable job. Yeah, do you know, Richard, I've got, I've got a lot of other questions for you, but I think that positive note is one we should probably end on as well. Just, just to say as well, we're looking ahead to the new ground. Kieran and I have visited Goodison Park as fans. I've visited there as a broadcaster, uh, and it's always a trip I look forward to because Bill Kenwright, I can confirm, is a very generous host. Is that yes, is that yes. welcoming is, is that welcoming attitude something that you'll be able to to look forward to to extending when you're in a big super mega stadium? Yeah, de- definitely. We want to retain all the best parts of Goodison, to be honest, and and that has informed a lot of the design brief over the last few years. So we we want the that sense of intimacy that's around the ground, you know, that the fans feeling like they're right on top of the action. That's a, a big part of Goodison. And, you know, our supporters say that. And so do fans of other clubs when they come, they, you know, we, we want it to feel exciting and like a, in a, you're in a cauldron, if you like, um, yeah. as a supporter. Um, and, you know, you're right, despite the challenges of Goodison, you know, the, the, you know, the lounges have been, a lot of them have been sort of fitted in. It wasn't sort of designed in, um, you know, we have, challenges around our broadcast uh, facilities and the press box and press area and all that kind of thing, but just because of the age of the, the stadium and when it was built. Um, so, but in spite of all of that, what we, what we hear all the time is 
you know, we have one of the warmest welcomes, whether you're yeah. from, coming from the media, whether you're coming into our hospitality, um, whether you're supporters from another club, you know, people like coming to Goodison Park. So we want the best things from that experience to be taken over to, into Bramley Moor Dock, but also for us to be able to benefit from all of the, the, the other things from a modern stadia that we just, we just can't get at Goodison. So, so yeah, the, the warmth and the friendliness, um, sort of behind the scenes, but the, also that sort of intimidating cauldron type atmosphere we want um, when the players run out as well. So there's some of the best things at Goodison and we, we hope to take those with us for sure. And of course, you'll be taking that legendary theme tune with you as well. The folk, well, it's not a theme tune, is it? it's an old folk song, but it's uh, that's another thing that gets the hairs on the back of your neck raised, isn't it? When Everton players run yeah, out to that brilliant definitely, song. Definitely, yeah, yeah. Zed Cars is uh, is definitely a, a big part of the club, and in the last couple of years, we've uh, introduced a siren just before it as well, which I think is uh, definitely here to stay now as well. So yeah, they'll be uh, they'll be in at the new stadium for for certain. Richard, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Hopefully, this uh, Kieran and I will have got over our local differences by the time you move to the new ground and we can come up and, <laughs> and see you and have a drink in your new boardroom. But in the meantime, good luck with all your endeavours um, and take care and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks very much. I like the idea of the taxi driver test, Kieran, by the way, and it's I think it's nice. On, on, in a week where we did finally get some optimistic news for football, it's nice to have an interview that was so positive about the effects of football and about that particular football club as well. I, I, you know, I basically I thought a big tick by every question he answered. Essentially, he, we know that Everton are a good club to visit, but he 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 sells that club very well, and they deserve to be sold very well, don't they? By the sound of it. Yeah, I mean, Richard is is incredibly professional. He's totally dedicated. Um, you know, I've I've seen Richard give uh, you know, address students that I have taught, and and they've all come away. Even even the the overseas fans who are Liverpool fans, you know, the overseas students who are Liverpool fans, say, "Well, I had no idea that Everton was doing so much." And it, it's it's something to be proud of uh, for people in the city, uh, but also it, it is it is quite humbling. That when you hear some of those stories, you know, people being being given food parcels who can't afford oh, to no, food no. to to, to eat the, the the cooker, uh, what what type of society is it? We're the we're the fifth or sixth richest country in the world. In the world how how know. on earth is this happening? And I'm I and as you know, I'm not party political, but something's not right, Kevin. Mm. I, I yeah <clears throat> well neither neither of us are party political career but I don't think it takes a genius for our listeners to work out where our politics really lie and, and you're absolutely right something's not right when people can't afford food and they can't afford the electricity to heat that food on and for everything that people like Marcus Rashford and Everton are doing and Palace and Brighton and clubs up and down the country they shouldn't have to be football clubs that are doing it <clears throat> but you can only thank those football clubs for doing so and and I'm gonna I'm gonna miss Goodison Park. I have to say, I had one of the best broadcasting days of my life there with Sylvester Stallone. It's a wonderful stadium, but things do have to move on. And Kieran, as as we move on, because this pod has been unexpectedly long, I'd like to, if you don't mind, Kieran, I'd like to say a couple of personal thank yous. Um, first of all, Kieran, I'd like to thank you for taking it on the chin. Uh, this pod, uh, Ali begged me not to say taking it on the chin. But I said, but I said, Ali, you know what his sense of humour is like. It will make him laugh. It will cheer him up. So, Kieran, thank and, you. And, and, not for the first time as well, Kevin, if truth be told, but that's that's to go back to the pink coconut days. <laughs> and and thank you, uh, uh, obviously, to Christian Benteke and Jean-Philippe Mateta. Uh, what a way to mark your first goal for the club, a back heel, a, a double nutmeg, back heel. Also, thank you, thank you to everyone who took part in our quiz on Sunday. Uh, despite our best efforts, Kieran, I think it was fairly obvious that we had recorded Monday's show before the quiz actually happened on Sunday <laughs> yes. night. Um, but thank you to everybody who joined in and made it such a, a fun occasion. A particular shout-out goes to one of your mob, Kieran, uh, Phil Shelley, who proudly proudly turned his Zoom camera around to show me his collection of 295 Brighton shirts, um, although I suspect 37 of them might have been Tesco carrier bags. But... But 295 Brighton shirts, I mean, that's a lot of shirts. I mean, that's as many touches as you had in our box in that whole game. But um, even more of a shout-out to uh, quiz participant Luke Owens, 
who from the 22nd of March is running seven marathons in seven days to raise money for the Charlie Waller Trust, which aims to educate young people and those with responsibility for them about mental health and well-being. So good luck with that, Luke. And if anybody of you want to donate money, and let's face it, seven marathons in seven days is a fantastic achievement. Uh, You can donate on his Just Giving page. Our next pod will be questions as usual so if you have any questions about football finance it's questions at priceoffootball.com and i shall hand you over to the big man the gracious man himself kieran Maguire, for the final the final thank you and goodbye well thank you everybody and and thanks for all the kind words uh, <laughs> the number of people that, that generally were caring about my welfare on on uh, on Monday night, I mean, yeah, I, I've I've got members of my family who are, yeah, you know, as, as people know, I'm actually I'm actually from South London, who have committed robberies, and I thought I thought those were the biggest ones I'd ever seen growing up. But what happened on Sunday night surpassed that by Crystal Palace. Uh, so uh, if you like the show, if you can give us a five star review, it makes a difference to producer guy Kevin and I don't know why. Um, and press that subscribe button and look after yourselves and. Let's start to look forward to to coming out of this goddamn uh, lockdown. Yeah, we, we we do have some light at the tunnel, and it'll be so great if we have some football and sport and music and theatre and comedy to look forward to in the forthcoming months. All I can say, Kieran, that's a fantastically South London way. But I've, I've, my family have done actual robberies. <laughs> that's, that's very, there's, there's not many. There's not many countries in the world where somebody would use that as a as a way of illustrating their. Dis- Pleasure at a football result. <laughs> Makes you proud to be British. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye. The price of football. Bye, son, for the